Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you would, get your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Romans. As you can see on the screen behind me, it is Romans night. And tonight we are in Romans, the eighth chapter. This is a monster of a chapter. And so you will be helped tremendously if you will get the Bible out and be following along as we read and study together for these next few minutes. It is great to see everybody tonight. Always very thankful for our uh, evening services on Sunday evening. Gives us the chance to do a little bit more praying, do a little bit more singing, and now to spend just a few more minutes together in the Word of God. And I hope you're, hope you're ready to do uh, some serious study as we work here in Romans the 8th chapter. Let's read together in Romans chapter 8. This is verse number 1. In Romans chapter 8 and in verse 1, there Paul says, There is therefore, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Someone once remarked that great literature are those great books that everybody wants to have read, but nobody actually reads. And I kind of wonder if that sentiment could be said about Romans, the eighth chapter. Because it is such a famous piece of writing. The ending section alone of Romans 8 is one of the high points in all of Scripture. It's one of the most well-known passages in all of the Bible. And so as a result, lots of people like this chapter. They like parts of this chapter. They like to quote out of this chapter. And yet I wonder just how many people have actually read and studied through this chapter in order to understand what Paul is developing and advancing in these 39 amazing verses. Well, my hope is is that you're going to be willing to actually put in that hard work because the payoff at the end is most definitely going to be worth it. I mean, after all, just look at that first verse again. For those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Man, I want some of that, don't you? That verse alone makes me want to understand the truths that this chapter is trying to convey because what this chapter is going to show us tonight is that the gospel offers something that the law of Moses could not provide. The gospel offers something that religious rule-keeping can never provide. Paul hinted back in chapter 7 that the gospel is going to offer life in the Spirit. Now he kind of gave a teaser about that back in chapter 7 and in verse 6. But the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, really hasn't been a major focal point in Paul's teaching prior to this time. Prior to chapter 8, Paul's mentioned the Spirit maybe two, three, four times at the most. But in chapter 8, Paul's going to mention the Spirit more than 20 times. And of course, any time the Holy Spirit is mentioned in Scripture... Lots of preconceived ideas and notions begin to bubble up to the surface and they begin to influence how we approach and how we treat the text. We have a tendency to get very, very nervous when there's lots of talk about the Holy Spirit because we're afraid that that's going to make us into a bunch of Pentecostals or something. I want you to listen to me very carefully tonight. Paul was not to this audience, nor is he to this audience here tonight trying to turn anybody into raving charismatics. There's not anything here in this chapter that is new or radical or going to upset the apple cart. Rather, Paul wants his readers to simply think about the person of the Holy Spirit 
and the role that the Holy Spirit plays in our struggle, our battle against sin. That's what he talked about at length in chapter 7. He wants to talk about how the Spirit will help us to be that new creation, that person who is alive in Christ Jesus, like he talked about in chapter 6. He's going to convey that the Spirit is our helper. Now, having said that, before we launch into Romans 8 tonight, I do need to issue an important disclaimer. Because as we're reading through all of these different references to the Spirit in chapter 8, it's not always going to be 100% clear as to whom or to what Paul is referring. You know, typically our modern translations will capitalize Holy Spirit, capital S, but will not capitalize references to to the human spirit, the spirit of man, little s. However, you need to know that the original text, the original Greek language from which our Bibles was translated, it did not differentiate between uppercase and lowercase. What you're looking at up there in the top right corner of the screen, that is the Greek word for spirit. And what you will notice is you will notice that that word, the casing is it's the same all the way across. And every time you see that word spirit here in chapter 8, it's just like that. It's no uppercase or lowercase spirit. Which means then that you and I... You and I are going to have to read the text. We're going to have to think about the context each time we see Spirit. And we're going to have to even use a little bit of our own judgment to determine whether that's talking about the Holy Spirit or whether that's talking about our Spirit. Now, of course, our translators have tried to help us along with that already. Most translations already will have uppercase Spirit or lowercase Spirit based on their particular judgment. However, I will have you know that it's not always going to be clear to us. I think there's even a couple of places here in chapter 8 where maybe the translators have it one way when it actually could be the other way. We just want to be careful and note all of that. And so, with all of that out of the way, let's just read in this amazing chapter. And as I said at the outset, this is a long chapter. And while I did entertain the possibility of just cramming the whole 39 verses into one session tonight, I got to thinking, number one, that's just not fair to everybody. But probably more importantly, it's really not fair to the text. Because what will happen is, is once we get up to about the 40 or 45 minute mark, I'll probably only be at about verse 20 and everybody's going to be zoned out and we're not going to really get all the great stuff that's going to be in the back half of the chapter. And so we're going to split it up. I'm going to work on the first half tonight and then we'll work on the next half of chapter 8 next Sunday night. So... Let's begin in the first half, beginning in verse 1 again. Read it with me. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now do you remember? Maybe just look back up just a little bit in the text. Look at the end of chapter 7. Do you remember the agony with which Paul ended chapter 7? O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of flesh? I want to do the right thing, but my body and flesh does not always cooperate. Why is that? What's going on here? It's so painful, this this inner struggle with sin. I want you to notice that when he comes to chapter 8, Paul says, that's in the past now. I've moved on now because the Lord has provided something. Notice the terms that Paul uses there in verse 1. The present tense of those words. There is, therefore now, No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now some people abuse that verse to try and advance the doctrine of once saved, always saved. 
And before we get finished with chapter 8, I'm going to show you a passage just right here within this own context that absolutely shatters that mistaken notion. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about once saved, always saved here. What Paul is saying here is he's saying, whereas the law of Moses condemned, and the reason the law of Moses condemned, as we talked about last week, is because the law of Moses required perfect obedience. The law of Moses required sinlessness. Jesus sets us free. Jesus sets us free. In fact, He sets us free in multiple ways. Verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Notice Paul says that a liberation has taken place here. Jesus has released us, not only from the grip of that, that monster of sin, but He's also released us from the requirements of the law. And He's done that, notice this, through a different law. The law of the Spirit of life. What is that? I believe that's simply a reference to just the gospel. The death, burial, and resurrection, the message of salvation that is found in Christ Jesus that brings true forgiveness. In that, there is no condemnation. Verse 3, he continues on, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. As I said last week from chapter 7, the law was not the problem. and That wasn't the issue. The problem was the people who didn't keep the law, people who had rebellious hearts. Notice as Paul says there in verse 3, it's people because we are we're weak. We are carnal. And so the law could never offer that true forgiveness that Christ Jesus later was able to provide. But God, verse 3, but God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus did what we could not. As one writer put it, Jesus became what we are so that we might become who He is. A son of God. A child of God. And He did that, verse 4. He did that in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Why did Jesus go to all the trouble of leaving heaven and coming down here and putting on flesh and living in this fallen and broken and sinful world? Well, He did that, verse 4, to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. And in fact, did you notice? Righteous requirement is singular. And what is that one requirement? What is that righteous requirement? Well, the righteous requirement was the sinless, perfect obedience to the law. That's all that the law wants. The law just wants obedience. And it needs perfect obedience. And Jesus came and did that. He came and did that perfectly for us. Now, I want to be clear. In no way does this mean that, hey, as long as I'm a Christian, I can just live any way that I want because, after all, Jesus came and lived perfectly for us. No, that's not what that passage is teaching. That's not what any of the Bible is teaching. Being set free from the law means being set free from a law that required perfect obedience. But in no way does that absolve us of our obligation to do what's right. To try to live in the way that pleases God. Notice in verse 4, look at the wording that Paul uses there. Paul says that Christians... We are the people who are going to walk not according to the flesh, but instead we're going to walk according to the Spirit. Walk, of course, is one of Paul's favorite metaphors. It's a metaphor for, for living. How are you going to live? 
Well, you're going to live in such a way that is in step with the Lord, in step with the Spirit. Somebody asked, well, how do we do that? What's the key to walking according to the Spirit? Well, what Paul's going to show next in the next couple of verses is that that battle is won or lost in the mind. The mind is where that's going to take place. Verse 5. Verse 5, Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh, it's hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And so what does Paul describe here? Well, he describes two different mindsets, two different ways of thinking. He describes, first of all, to be fleshly-minded, worldly-minded. What's that mean? Well, that means to be occupied with the things of, of self, to be only concerned really with the things of the temporal world in which you and I live right now. That's the fleshly-minded person. person who's just only concerned with the here and the now and gratifying themselves and enjoying life, whatever, whatever their definition of that might be. On the other hand, he describes what it means to be spiritually-minded. That's the person who is concerned mostly with the things of God. A person who is focused primarily on the things that last beyond this world. This is the per person who is thinking heavenly. It's the person who is thinking eternally. One mindset results in death. The other mindset results in life and in peace. And I want you to notice this is important. There's no middle ground here. It's not, there's not some third option or some blend of both of those options. It's one or the other. Either you're a fleshly, carnally minded person or you're a spiritually minded person. I would draw your attention right now especially to verse 7 where Paul says there that the fleshly minded person is hostile to God. Notice he says they're hostile to God because they won't submit to God's law. I want you to notice a connection here. Do you see how enmity with God and rebellion to God's law, that they're one and the same? It's the same thing? A person can't say, oh, I, oh, I love God. I love Him so much, but, but doesn't even attempt to live their life according to the Bible. A person can't say, oh man, I tell you, I just love the man upstairs, but no, I've never even opened a Bible before. That, that doesn't work. That absolutely can't work. You can't, you can't do it that way. You can't somehow love the Lord and yet reject the Lord's Word. If you reject God's law, then that means you reject God. Which brings us then to verse 8. Verse 8, Paul says, those who are in the flesh can not please God. As long as you're fleshly, carnally, worldly minded, Paul says you can't please the Lord. Now verse 8 is a favorite verse for Calvinists. I want you to please notice though, verse 8 does not say anything about how you're stuck there. Verse 8 doesn't say anything about how, well you can't ever break free from that kind of worldly, fleshly, carnal thinking. Verse 8 does not say, oh you were just born that way. You were born depraved and you are incapable of ever changing your mind. That's not what verse 8 says. Paul's simply saying here that when your mind is set on pleasing God, then yeah, good things come. Blessings will naturally flow. But when you don't care about God, 
When you don't have interest in the Lord and in pleasing Him, then there's no way that you can expect God's blessings and good things to come. You cannot expect somehow to have life and peace as He describes in these passages. The only thing you can expect is death. However, however, verse 9, you Romans, you are not in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. I want you to notice something here. Notice that the terms Spirit of God and Spirit of Christ, those really just seem to be interchangeable terms. They really just seem to be kind of different names for the same idea here. Paul talks here about the relationship that the Christian has with the Lord. And what he describes here in verses 9, 10, and 11 is that there is an indwelling of God's Spirit within the Christian. And that is repeated in verses 10 and 11. Look at that, verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you you. And so notice that Paul says that even though our physical body is is doomed to to suffer death, physical death, because of the consequences of sin. We talked about that in a previous chapter. Adam's sin had far-reaching effects. Despite that, our spirit is alive. And in fact, I'd have you notice there in verse 10, that word spirit, I think that could go either way. Depending on your translation, mine, the ESV, it's got spirit capitalized. If you're reading from a New American Standard though this evening, you notice that spirit is lowercase. And it could be read a couple of different ways. That maybe it is the Holy Spirit who makes you alive. Or maybe it could be read that the Holy Spirit makes your spirit alive. And so that's one of those places where it could go in either direction. I actually kind of lead toward the way that the New American Standard renders that. But the fact is, we've been made right with God by the Spirit. Now, of course, as soon as I put those words up on the screen, indwelling of the Spirit... That's exactly where we have questions. What is the business with all of that? Three times in those few short verses, Paul says, the Spirit dwells in you. What exactly does that mean? Well, let me just start by first and foremost saying what it doesn't mean. It does not mean all that charismatic stuff that we've been sold about getting the Spirit. Or how we need to pray for the Spirit to to come upon us in order to receive some kind of extra special, I don't know, enlightenment or, or some other kinds of knowledge that other people do not have. And so you need to get the Spirit. If that were the case, if that were true, then what that means is, is that means that Paul is describing here two different kinds of Christians. That you would have on one hand all these spirit-filled Christians who they've gotten the spirit and they've got all the special bonus stuff that goes along with that. But then on the other hand, you'd have just just kind of regular Joe Christians. Just plain vanilla Christians who maybe in some ways are kind of inferior to these super ultra-spiritual Christians over here. Can I just say to you tonight that Paul doesn't say anything along those lines. Doesn't say anything about two classes of Christians. Instead... Romans 8 shows us that there's only one kind of Christian. And you know what that is? It is a spirit-indwelt Christian. A Christian who has the spirit dwelling in him or in her. Look at verse 9 again. I think this is helpful. In verse 9, Paul says, If the spirit is not in you, 
then you don't even belong to Christ. Do you see it there? Yeah, there is two groups here. Either you're a Christian who has the Spirit in you, or you're not a Christian. You see that? Christian with the Spirit, or you're just not even a Christian at all. And so if it's not this Pentecostal type stuff that much of the religious world is trying to advance, then what exactly is meant by this indwelling of the Spirit? Well, I believe that there's not a whole lot of reason for us to try and overcomplicate things. I believe every time we see that terminology, dwells in you, dwells in you, dwells in you, maybe what we just need to think of is we just need to think of relationships. We don't need to think of something spooky or something mysterious happening there. We just need to think relationship. In fact, look in the previous chapter. Look in chapter 7. Here's a good kind of parallel usage of this same language. In chapter 7, look in verse 17. In chapter 7 and verse 17, Paul says, So it's now, now, excuse me, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that sin that dwells in me. Well, what does that mean, Paul? What that means is that means that Paul had a relationship with sin. It meant at one point in his life, sin was prevailing and was controlling him. And I think when we then come over to chapter 8 and we talk about the Spirit dwelling in us, that's exactly how we ought to think about that. There's a relationship there. Got a relationship with the Lord through the Spirit. And as a result of that, that means that the Lord is prevailing and controlling me in that relationship. The question that then engenders is, is, well, how's that accomplished? How's God do that? You know, is the Spirit actually there inside of us? Or does the Spirit use some means, some mechanism to control us? Well, I believe that the Scripture just uniformly teaches that the primary mechanism with which the Spirit controls us is the Word of God. I think that's how the Spirit primarily has relationship with us. I mean, just think about it. How, how do we even know anything about the Holy Spirit? It's the book. It's the Word. How do we know what the Lord wants from us, what He wants us to do, how we can please Him? It's the book. It's the Bible. How do we become a spiritually minded person, as Paul talks about in this chapter? It's, it's the Bible, isn't it? It is the Spirit-inspired Word that connects us to the Spirit so that we can do all those other things, so that we can be led by the Spirit, so that we can walk in the Spirit, so that we can bear the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit exercises His control through the written Word of God. Now, I want to be clear about that. Nothing in Scripture says that the Spirit is going to give us a case of the warm fuzzies inside. Or that we ought to expect some kind of, you know, hunches or premonitions or nudges or that we ought to get funny feelings in our heart or indigestion in our stomach or anything along those lines. This I've got the Spirit sort of stuff. No. No, the Spirit controls us as we walk in the Word. Now... Having said that, and I of course have preached that a couple. Of, I've actually preached a couple of full sermons on the Holy Spirit and His work, and I'd be glad to make those available to anybody who might need those because that's probably more thorough discussions about the Holy Spirit than we're going to have this evening. Having said that, though, I also want to be careful tonight not to just totally strip and rob Paul's words in Romans chapter eight of what might be their full force. Is the Bible important? Absolutely. 
The Bible is incredibly important. It is a tool that the Spirit uses to influence us and to direct us and to lead us. But is that all that Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 8? In fact, there's really even nothing in Romans chapter 8 contextually that would have led the Roman audience to conclude that he's talking about the Word of God. You know, is Paul just saying, hey, you know, guys, you just need, just need to read your Bible more and you'll be able to finally slay this big monster of sin that I've been talking about for the past three chapters. Think about this. If all of that information that was contained in the law of Moses, if that wasn't enough to beat sin, then what makes us think that more information is what it's going to take to defeat sin? In fact, let me add one other wrinkle to that. How can Paul say that the only way that the Spirit is working is through the Word if the Scriptures aren't even completed when Paul writes this letter to the Roman brethren? Look again at verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11, look at what Paul says there. He says, If Christ is in you, even though the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Paul seems to be saying that when we are in a relationship with Christ through the Spirit, that we are then empowered to do some things that we could not do before. And I've got to tell you, I think that's something that I need to think more about. In fact, maybe all of us need to think about the very real possibility that maybe the Spirit actually does dwell within the Christian in reality. Now, please, please don't leave here this evening and ask me to explain that because I can't. I don't know about that. I can only just say what Paul has said in this chapter. That maybe there is some sense in which the Spirit is within us and strengthens us and enables us to control the flesh and to control the desires of the flesh. I want to reiterate for the, I don't know, second or third time now, that does not give any kind of credence whatsoever to the fuzzy feeling stuff or to the nudges or the hunches and all that kind of stuff that people believe in today. It's just leaving open the possibility that maybe the Spirit works in our lives in other ways that maybe we just don't understand and maybe we'll never fully understand on this side of eternity. And so whether you believe that the Spirit dwells within us figuratively through the Word, and I think He most certainly does, or that He dwells within us in actuality, and maybe He does, or maybe it's even a combination of both of those ideas, the point here is that God has promised to help us in our battle with sin. And what Romans 8 is showing us is that the Spirit is that help. That's the help that God has promised each and every one of us. And I've got to tell you, if there's maybe one major takeaway from these first 11 verses of Romans chapter 8, is that we need to, verse 5, we need to fix our minds on the things of the Spirit. Where does change come from? Change always comes from the inside out. I'm afraid that far too often in my own life or when I think about the lives of others and people that are around me, I, I, I get to working on the externals first. I, hey, there's bad behavior going on. That guy's over there drinking a beer. Well, he needs to stop drinking that beer. Or that person's over there being promiscuous. Well, he needs to get them to stop that promiscuity. That's not where the battle's going to be won. The battle needs to be won internally first. 
We change our minds. We change how we think about those things. And what will happen is that the outside will follow. Those outward actions, those outward behaviors, that's what's going to follow. Romans 8 helps us to see how important it is to change our minds. We need to get our minds set on the Spirit, set on the things of righteousness and purity and holiness and eternity. That's what will change how we live. In fact, that's Paul's next point in verse 12. In verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Paul says we don't owe the flesh anything. Sin has not done one good thing for us. In fact, just think about that. What good thing has sin ever done for you? Can you name one good thing that sin has done for your life? I would be awfully curious to know if someone thinks sin has brought something good into their life. Sin hasn't done anything good for us, and so we don't owe sin anything. You know who we owe? We owe the Spirit. We are obligated. We should feel obligated to the Spirit. Verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I'm going to give you this for free. It seems to me that verse 13 just absolutely shatters once saved always saved doctrines and beliefs. Because look at there in the text. Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. What does he mean by that? Does he mean physically you're going to die? Nope. I know all kinds of people, right, probably this very moment, who are out sinning and doing wickedness, and the Lord's not striking them dead. They're still living. I know people who lived a very long time and sinned for a very long time. He's not talking there about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. You live according to the flesh, then you will die spiritually. Here's the follow-up question. Who's he talking to here? Is he talking to worldly people? Nope. Verse 12. So then, brothers. He's talking to Christians. He says, Christian, you can fall away. Christian, You can make choices and decisions that will cause you to be spiritually dead. I would suggest to you that is the exact opposite of what once saved, always saved teaches. What Paul is aware of is he is aware that there is a war going on. And as I talked about in the sermon this morning, Christians are right in the crosshair of that spiritual battle that's taking place. Because there are Christians who may choose for whatever foolish reason. They may choose to stop fighting on the side of good and right and for the forces of light. They may choose to betray that allegiance and begin fighting for the forces of darkness. Paul says you need to be careful about that. That's why he then says, verse 13, last part of the verse, If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. I want you to please notice here, that the control that the Spirit exercises in your life or in my life, it's not like some kind of, we just become some kind of mindless robot. That the moment we become a Christian, God just takes over. And we don't really have to do anything. God just does all the right things for us. No, that's not how that works. You have to decide. I have to decide. We have to choose to, to submit ourselves to the Spirit. We have to choose to allow the Spirit to use His Word to guide us and direct us in the way that we ought to go. That then brings us to verse 14 where Paul says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God, they are sons of God. We'll have to decide to live right. We'll have to allow God to lead us in the right way. 
And in fact, when you stop and think about it, isn't that exactly what children ought to do with their father or with their mother? In fact, maybe the image here in verse 14, the idea of being led by the Spirit, maybe what we need to see here is the Spirit just gently taking by the hand one of God's children and helping us, leading us along. Not forcing us, but we've willingly given Him our hand and He then leads us in the path that we ought to be traveling. It's a decision that we have to make because we are sons of God. We are daughters of God. We are the children of God. Verse 15, verse 15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. We've been adopted into the family of God. We have been brought out of the bondage of slavery and we have been placed in... It's not just that we got, you know, we got let out of slavery. No, even better than that, we got released from slavery and then we got adopted into the greatest family ever. God's family. You know, if this week, if in your mailbox, you found a certified letter and it was sent from Warren Buffett and the letter said that Warren Buffett is adopting you into his family... We'd be pretty excited about that. I think I'd be pretty excited about that. Mr. Buffett has more than two nickels to rub together. He's got some money. And so if you're in Warren Buffett's family, that means, well, that means you stand to inherit some of that money. And we'd feel pretty special about that. Feel pretty special about being an heir to someone who is really, really rich. How about being an heir of God? How about being an heir with Christ? How about standing to receive an inheritance that is far greater than any earthly bank accounts or money or 401ks that could ever be provided to us? How about standing to receive an eternal inheritance? That is incredible. Somebody says, well, well I mean, how, how do we know that we stand to receive all that? How do we know that we're really in God's family? How can we be confident about that? You know, how can we use, look there in verse 16 again, excuse me, verse 15 again. How can we so confidently use that, that special term of endearment? Abba. You know, that, that's the word that was only reserved for the child in a family as he talks to his father. Well, I mean, we're adopted children. I mean, how can we actually use that kind of language? How do we know we're God's children? The Spirit helps us. Verse 17. If we are children, then we are heirs. Excuse me, verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. That's the kicker here. Notice there is a clear distinction between the Holy Spirit and with our spirit there in verse 16. But notice how verse 16 says that the Holy Spirit, He has a role in assuring our spirit that we're in God's family. And I want to say again, that's not, that's not nudges. It's not inner voices or any of that other kind of spooky mystical stuff. What it may mean is it may mean that the Spirit does that assurance through His favorite tool. That maybe He does that through the Bible. That is you and I, as we read the Bible, as we study the Bible, we come to understand what it means to be a child of God. We learn within its pages what's a child of God like. How does a child of God act? How does a child of God think? How does a child of God conduct themselves? And as we read that teaching and absorb that teaching, we can ask ourselves, okay, am I doing that? Am I a child of God? That's how we maybe are shown by the Spirit that we're God's children. 
It may even mean as well, as one writer noted, it may mean that the Holy Spirit testifies in front of the Father and says, yes, this one, this one is one of ours. Him or her, they, they are our children. These are your children, Father. This one is an heir. Either way, though, this passage speaks to the kind of confidence that we ought to have, that we are God's children, verse 17 now. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Notice how verse 17 says that being an heir is a now, but it's also a later. You know, there are blessings that we enjoy as being God's children in the here and in the now. But there are even greater blessings that are not yet. There are things that we look forward to, that we anticipate sometime down the road. I would have you notice though, maybe the word that catches my attention a lot in verse 17, it's that word provided, it's how the ESV renders it. Your translation may just use the little word, if. That's a conditional term, isn't it? Being an heir, being a son, or being a daughter in the family of God, it comes with some responsibilities. There are some things that we need to be about, some things we need to do, even some things that we need to endure, like what he mentions in verse 17. That we'll have to endure some suffering. But what Paul sets before the Christians in Rome in these first 17 verses is a whole brand new way to live. It's living in the Spirit. It's a way, for example, for the Gentile Christians to be able to overcome their pagan past. You don't have to involve yourself in that degrading, idolatrous lifestyle. You can set your mind on the Spirit and you can live above that. It's also a way for those Jewish brethren in that church to overcome their obsession with trying to save themselves through perfect obedience to the law of Moses. Instead, you can set your mind on the Spirit and walk in the Spirit through faith in Jesus. However you want to look at it though, this new way in the Spirit, it is the remedy that all people in the first century, it is the remedy that all people in the 21st century need in order to overcome sin, in order to battle against the flesh that is always warring with us. It is the way that we find life and peace in Jesus Christ. Somebody maybe as they think about that, in fact maybe even somebody in the church at Rome as they thought about all that thought, you know Paul, that sounds great, but man, that's just so hard to do. I mean, look at the world we're living in. There's so much wrong in our world. So much sin, so much wickedness, so many forces that are pulling and tugging at us in all kinds of different directions. It's just, it's just so hard. And that's exactly what Paul wants to address in the last half of Romans chapter 8. And we'll have to save that for next week. I want to go back to the thing that I said, I think in many ways, was kind of the takeaway for this early part of Romans the 8th chapter. As we extend the invitation of Jesus, I want us to think for just a moment about the significance of the mind. Where is your mind? Is your mind set on the flesh, on the things of this world? If it is, then friend, that's a, it's a dead end. This world has an expiration date. Your body has an expiration date. And so we need to be thinking beyond just the temporal here and the now, which is why it's important to have a mind that is spiritually trained, 
a spiritually minded person. If you're here this evening and you're not a Christian, we sure would like to help you to begin those steps in order to become a spiritually minded person. And that all begins by just obeying the gospel, becoming a child of God. Is there somebody here this evening who is ready to confess their faith in Jesus as God's Son, to repent, turn away from sin, make the determination now that I'm going to live by the Spirit. I'm going to live for the Lord. Let us then baptize you in water for the forgiveness of your sins. You can come up out of that water something brand new, a Christian, somebody who's ready to walk and to live and be led by the Spirit. If you are a Christian but you've not been living as you ought to, it may just be that you've gone from being a, a very, very, very spiritually minded person to being a more carnally minded person. Fix that, brother or sister. Maybe that's just something you do right there in the pew because it just takes some rewiring of your mind right where you are. But maybe you want to call upon us as your brothers and sisters here to encourage you, to help you, to seek God's forgiveness for something that you've done. Whatever that might be, we're ready to assist you in that. Whatever anyone's need might be this evening, to serve the Lord and to do that faithfully, we stand ready to assist you. Do that by coming to the front while we stand and while we sing.